teaching here. Uh, Jared, the head pastor, he's away on vacation, a much-needed vacation. And so I'm filling in in his place. Um, I want to start off by taking a real quick poll. Who here loves to hike? Just like, loves getting out there, going up the mountain. Okay, there's like a good 50% maybe. Um, See, I'm the person who I really want to love hiking. But there's just something, I just don't. I mean, I want to be the guy who's like, let's get up at 5 a.m. and walk up the mountain. And, and for some reason, I, I don't know if it's my body type or my skin tone that just gets burned out there when you're out there too long, but every time I do it, I have a bad time. It's, I, I just never enjoy hiking. Um, and there was one time, it's about nine years ago, uh, where I, I tried to like hiking. Um, it was actually Danny Slyke, who's back there in the back with the green shirt. Him and his dad, they do this hike called the Hike to the Towers. Um, my brother calls it the Death March. And, um, and so nine years ago, Danny and his dad, they've been doing this hike lots of times, and they invite me to go on the hike. And I'm excited. Um, I'm, I'm wanting to like hiking. I know I already don't like hiking. I know that they're in better shape than me, but I think, you know what, maybe this is a sign, like, like I'm getting in better shape, and they must think that I can handle the hike now. And so I invite um, my brother to go on the hike with us, and then uh, my girlfriend at the time, Julia, to go on the hike with us as well. And so we get out there bright and early. It's the middle of the summer, right after our senior year. We get out there maybe 5.30, 6 a.m. We park our cars, and we're ready to go. And, and I look around, and I realize I'm a little less prepared than everyone else on the hike. I have, I have normal running shoes on, basketball shorts, a shirt, and a plastic water bottle that I grabbed out of the fridge on my way out. And here's my brother. He's, he's clipping up his camelback. Uh, Danny's dad has one of these things where you can just like put a bunch of waters in everywhere. <laughs> Everyone looks like really intense, really ready to go on this hike. Um, and we're like, okay, let's go. Let's do it. And immediately, I realize I've made a mistake because Danny and his dad start running. <laughs> and I think, this is, not what I, this is not what I pictured in my head. I pictured us kind of like you know, walking through the forest, maybe I'll find a stick and it'll be my fun walking stick. And, <laughs> and they start running and then my brother starts running and then Julia starts running and then I was like, I guess we're running. And so we run and it's three miles just to get to the base of this mountain. I've never run three miles in my life. And so <laughs> we get to the base of this mountain um, and uh, I'm, I'm already exhausted. I'm already worn out. And I finished my, my water bottle, the only water I brought on the trip. Um, and so we haven't even begun the hiking portion of this. We've just done the running portion. Um, and so I turned to, to Julia, and I'm, I'm like, look, I don't think this was a good I feel like this was a bad idea. We shouldn't have done this. Uh, I think we should probably go back. And she's like, you're right. You know, we ran out of water. We don't have any water. We should probably head back. So I turned to the guys. I'm like, look, the girl, she can't keep up with you guys. I would go. <laughs> I would go forever, but you know she, uh, she she's tired and she wants to go back, so we're going to go back. And so we head on back, um, and we get to the car, and we decide we're just going to wait. We're going to wait it out. It's probably, I don't know, going to be, they're way faster than us, so maybe an hour. We wait an hour. We wait two hours. We start to feel like maybe something's wrong. Um, and there's two cars there. And after waiting two hours, I'm kind of like, ah, I don't, I don't want to wait anymore. This is too much. They have their own car. 
They have the keys to that other car. They'll be fine. They'll make their way back. And so we just go to Fry's. Uh, this was kind of Julia's idea, but we go to Fry's. We grab a bunch of water and Gatorade. We're like, they'll probably be thirsty when they get back. And so we grab this water. We grab this Gatorade. And we just leave it there next to the car uh, that's being left there. And, and we head off. We have to go to church. It's like almost 1030 at this point. So I'm sitting in church. I'm starting to get this panicky feeling in my gut, like, why haven't they texted me back? Why haven't they called? It's like 11.30 at this point. It's been you know, five and a half hours out on the, the hiking trail. It's 110 degrees out. This is, this is not good. And I finally get this text from Danny that just says, we made it. And I feel a little bit of peace. I feel a little bit better. I'm like, OK, they made it. It's weird that he just said, we made it. But, but OK, that's good. That's good. And so I head home after church, and I walk in. And I see this lump that's just laying um, spread eagle on the floor. I mean, completely just passed out on the floor. And I walk in, and my, it's my brother. And he turns over and looks at me. And he goes, hey, Tyler, how's it going? And I immediately, I'm like, what is wrong with your voice? Like, what happened to you? This is, there's something wrong here. Um, and he goes on to tell me this story of how they made it to the top of this mountain, this, this death march that my brother calls it. Um, they make it to the top of this mountain, and as they get to the top, everyone runs out of water. Um, and so this is a pretty common thing in Arizona, I guess. Um, I don't hike a lot, so I wouldn't know about it. But they ran out of water at the top of the mountain. They, they start to think, OK, it'll be faster if we make a, a new trail down. If we don't follow the trail back, we just kind of head straight down the mountain. And so apparently it was this whole ordeal where they're getting cactuses stuck in them. They're just, it's just a miserable time. And by the time they get towards the bottom of the mountain, they're completely dehydrated. Danny and my brother are just dying. I mean, they are, they're completely parched. They're completely thirsty. It's, uh, literally what they're doing is they lay down in the shade of either a cactus or a tree. And they'll get up and walk like 50 yards until they find some more shade, and they'll lay down there for a little bit and regain some strength, get up, walk a little longer, sit down beneath the shade of the tree. Uh, and luckily, Danny's dad is in much better shape than both of them somehow. And he was fine. And he continued on without them. And uh, he actually got the car and somehow drove it back up uh, the trail a little bit and saved their lives. Um, but I remember my brother saying, like, we, we got to the car, and we saw that water. We saw that Gatorade that was left there. And it was like, oh, man. I have never wanted something so bad in my life. I saw this water there, and it was like all I could think about. It was all I could, all, it was like, finally. It, it was almost like it was glowing to him. <laughs> and he grabs the water, and he guzzled the water so fast, like it, it actually hurt, it destroyed his vocal cords. And so for a week, he was talking with this weird, raspy, nerdy little accent that made me really happy. But um, he actually drank the water so fast it destroyed his vocal cords. And uh, the reason I tell this story is because I want to ask the question, have you ever had a thirst like that? Have you ever had a desire for something so bad, like you, I, I can't get enough of it? Like I want it so bad, I'll do anything to get that. I remember my brother saying, I would have paid a million dollars for that bottle of water. I was thinking to myself, I should have been there to collect. But 
he was, I would have done whatever it took to get some water at that point, and there it was. It was like the greatest joy that I could ever have to see that water. Um, and so for the past few weeks, um, we've been talking about the stories that Jesus told. And essentially, the stories Jesus told are the parables. And, and if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that parables are stories that illustrate a spiritual truth. And so today we're going to be in Matthew 13, looking at one of the parables. Um, and in Matthew 13, we find ourselves in the middle of seven straight parables. There's seven parables where Jesus is going to say, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. He says it seven times in a row. And for the first four, he's talking to an entire crowd. He's talking to everyone, um, believers, non-believers, his disciples, just people who have kind of wandered in, people who, who want to see what the ruckus is all about. These are the, the first four stories he tells. And then the last three stories, he saves those specifically for his disciples. He saves these last three stories specifically for the ones who knew him best. I mean, that's where we're going to be in these, these last three stories. And the reason he saves these stories for the disciples is because they were the ones trusting that he was indeed the king that was promised. And so he's telling these parables, he's telling these stories to give them a better picture of what kind of king he is and what kind of kingdom that he's going to be ushering in. And so the, the parable begins in, in verse 44 of Matthew 13, and it says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Um, and before we even get into the rest of the parable, I really want to define what is the kingdom of heaven. Um, if you think about the idea of a kingdom, a kingdom is everywhere that the king has authority, right? So the kingdom of England would have been everywhere where the king of England had authority. Uh, growing up, I would have said my, my parents' house, that was their kingdom, because that's where my parents had authority. That what, what I say goes in this house, because they had, their word had authority there, and so that's their kingdom. Um, and so for God, you could, you could say, okay, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, which is um, kind of a synonymous term there, um, could be everything. You could say, yeah, God has authority everywhere. He has authority across the whole earth. He has authority across the whole universe. God's authority is, is everywhere. Um, but that's not, which, which is true. That's what the, the Bible teaches. But that's not what this term kingdom of heaven actually means or kingdom of God actually means. Um, what the kingdom of heaven is talking about is the, place, the places in which God asserts his authority through the redemption, uh, through redemption in Christ. Um, and so uh, and really you can boil it down to this, that the kingdom of God is the redemptive rule or reign of God in Christ. And so you can see there's a couple areas um, in Scripture where we talk about the kingdom of heaven. Um, for example, in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, we say, uh, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And what we're really saying there is, God, assert your redemptive rule and reign over us and across this earth. Assert your rule and reign over us. Um, and so when we kind of understand that the kingdom of heaven is this redemptive rule or reign of God, um, it starts to take uh, a little more form 
Um, it's this thing that is not only a present reality, it's, it's this present reality that we get to experience right now, but it's also this thing that's going to be completed in the future. Um, and so when we read the kingdom of heaven in this parable, essentially what we're saying is Christ and his redemptive work. Um, and so this is how the parable goes. In verse 44, it says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So here's a man, um, and he stumbles upon this treasure. Now, in our day and age, it's pretty unlikely that you're just going to be walking through a field and stumble upon some treasure, but we're talking 2,000 years ago. They didn't have uh, safety deposit boxes. They didn't have secure banks. They didn't have security systems at their houses. And so it wasn't an uncommon practice for people to take their most valuable possessions, the things that they valued most, and to take them out into the field that they had and to find a spot and bury them there. Because if someone was to, to break in your house and steal all, all your stuff, then you knew, okay, there's a hidden spot where all, all my real valuable stuff is. And every now and then, what would happen is the, the, the man who owned the house, the man who buried the treasure, maybe he, he got sick and died, or something happened where the treasure is lost. And so here's this man um, walking through a field. The field's not his field, someone else's field, and he stumbles upon this treasure. And as he stumbles upon this treasure, he realizes its immense worth. He realizes that there's something just crazy valuable about this treasure. So valuable, in fact, that he's willing to do whatever it takes. He's willing to do whatever it is that needs to be done in order to get this treasure. And so he goes and he, and he takes literally everything he has, everything he owns, every little piece of, of money to his name, he takes it and he sells it. And I, I'm sure his friends and his family are thinking, you're crazy. You're, sell you're selling everything you have. You're selling your animals and your clothes and your house and your everything. Shouldn't you save a little bit? And he, he's like, no, I, I got to sell it all. I, gotta, I have to have this treasure that's in the field. And it says that it was a joy for him to do so. It's a joy for him to do so because he had found something worth losing everything for. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is. It's, it's so valuable that losing everything on earth to get it would be a happy trade-off. In uh, 2004, Disney came out with a movie that is almost the exact same premise of, of this story. There's a man who realizes that there's a great treasure buried somewhere. And it might be worth more than anyone could ever imagine, a, a bigger treasure than has ever been found before. And he finally finds a map. Um, after years and years of searching, he finds that there's a map that's going to lead directly where this treasure is. And at this point, he's thinking, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get that map. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get that map so that I can get that treasure. And that's when Nicolas Cage decides to steal the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> because th that's how important the kingdom of God is, is that when we see its true value, we'd be willing to do whatever it takes to get it. We come to Christ because he is reward. 
he's better than the best things of, of this earth combined. And it's worth letting go of all things in order to take hold of him as our one thing. And I think when we read this parable, we begin to understand some of the characters of, um, of Scripture better. We, we begin to understand these men and women in the Bible who do things that, that wouldn't make sense to the outside world, that really, that really seem pretty crazy. Take Job, for example. He has his entire business collapse and go bankrupt. His, his marriage goes south. All of his children die, and he contracts a horrible disease. Um, and he's in horrible pain. And how does Job respond? He says, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To, to an outside world, that's crazy. To an outside world, that's, what, what do you mean, blessed be the name of the Lord? Literally, you've lost everything, but he understands the value of the treasure in the field. Or think about the apostles who in the book of Acts are, are brought in by the Sanhedrin, the, the leaders of, of the day, and are just beaten bloody. Um, it says that they're flogged. And so uh, these apostles, after they're beaten, it says they leave rejoicing. They leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. First off, if you're a part of the Sanhedrin, you've got to be like really ticked off because you brought these guys in, you beat them, and now they're happier leaving than when, when they came in. But secondly, it, it's got to look crazy. It's got to look crazy to an outside world, but, but the apostles, they understood the value of the treasure in the field. They understood what they had in Christ, and, and they were willing to lose everything on this earth. They were willing to lose their money, their health, their strength, their friends, their family, in order to get the kingdom of heaven. It was a joyful transaction for them. And so I, I read stories like this, and I read uh, this parable, and I, can get, I get really convicted. Because to be honest, this is something I know mentally, but a lot of times I don't live it out. A lot of times it doesn't really, hasn't made its full way from my head to my heart. Um, it, it's easy to say, yeah, you know, God is the most important thing. God is everything to me. I would give up everything to follow God. But then when it comes to, the, to, to real everyday life, a lot of the times I fail. I'm too focused on me, 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 and what I need and what I want to focus on the treasure that I have in Christ. And so um, it, it gets convicting. It gets uh, tough to, to, to struggle with, and I start questioning things. But what I think is awesome is that Paul feels a little bit the same way. Um, he, so he, uh, in Philippians 3.8, he says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So he starts off and he says, look, literally... Everything else, everything else, I count it as rubbish. This word rubbish, uh, it actually means dung or poo. Uh, so he's, he's saying literally everything else is just a dirty diaper in comparison to who Christ is and to the joy of knowing Christ. Um, and then he continues on 
in verse 12 and says this, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. So Paul, he says, look, everything is rubbish. Everything else is just trash in comparison to knowing Christ, to to knowing Jesus. But I'm not quite there yet. I'm not 100% perfect. I don't nail it all the time. There's still times where, where I don't live it out the way I should. And this is Paul, the guy, I mean, who could literally say, was healing people, was doing crazy things in the name of the Lord. And he still feels like, I've got some work to do. I've got some way to go. And he says, I press on to make it my own. And I love that, that terminology there, this, this pressing on to make this what his life is about. Um, it's this idea that, that Paul is striving. He's pushing forward. He's pushing on because he knows there's this, this holy discontentment in him that, that he knows there's more to attain. There's more to Christ, and I want more and more and more of it. And, and so I'm going to press on. I'm going to push on in order to get more of Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is ask the question, um, how do we press on to make it our own? How do we press on to, to make this a reality in our life? Um, there's kind of an acronym I came up with. I don't usually do a lot of acronyms, but apparently it's a lot easier to remember. Um, and, and this is kind of the answer. Um, the acronym is urgently act. We need to urgently act. Um, notice the man in the story, uh, the, the man in the parable. He finds the treasure hidden in the field, and he, he discovers it, and he realizes, wow, this is pretty awesome. This is pretty great. But I'm, I'm pretty busy right now, and so you know, I've got kids, and I've got a job, and I've got all these things uh, that I really need to take care of, and this is, you know, this is good, but I'll come back to it later. I'll, I'll go take care of the things I need to take care of. I'll do the things I'm going to do. I'll, I'll kind of enjoy my money while I still have it, and then I can come back, and, and then, then I'll buy the field. That's not what happens in the story at all, right? It's like he sees the treasure. He realizes its value, and from then on, he's on mission. From then on, it's like this urgency has been placed inside him. I got to get this field, and I got to get it. ASAP. Like, I, I need this. And that's what we see throughout the scriptures. If you take a look at um, Matthew chapter 3, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, um, and he shows up at the Sea of Galilee. He's about to call his first disciples. Watch what happens. He says this, Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boats and their father and followed him. It seems like when Jesus calls, there's an urgency throughout Scripture. There's an urgency in these people's lives of I'm going now. It's not, I, I'm going to take, you know, uh, maybe later, maybe when, you know, there's not so much riding on me having what I want. Maybe later when I get all the things that I want, and then, 
then I'll come back to Christ. There's this urgency of, I've got to go now. Has anyone ever had to put out a fire? Anyone here? Okay, I've had, I've had the pleasure of accidentally starting a couple fires. Um, uh, and one of the fires, I was young, I, I started a fire on the fence in my backyard. And here's what didn't happen when I, when I lit the fence on fire in my backyard. I didn't look at the fence and go, well, it's almost lunchtime. I'm going to get lunch, and then I'll do some stretches, and then I'll get back here, and I'll put this fire out. No, it was like immediately I was like, get the hose and get it now. We're all going to die. We need to put this fire out. There's this urgency inside of, inside of you when, when something is going wrong, when something is... When you have to put a fire out, you're not thinking, okay, maybe a couple months down the road we'll get, we'll get to this. There's this urgency that's built up inside us, and that's really how we should be when it comes to, to Christ. C.S. Lewis, um, in, in one of his writings, he talks about three demons contemplating how to best fool man. What's the best way? How do we trick man into believing these lies? And one, the, the first demon says, why don't we tell them there's no God? That'll be good. We'll just tell them that there's no God. And the second demon, he says, eh, what if we tell them that there's no heaven? That'll be good. The third demon, who's a little older and wiser, he says, better yet, we'll tell them there's no hurry. There'll be plenty of time later to do the work of the Lord. I think that's what the enemy is trying to get us to believe, that there's no hurry, that you've got all the time, in the, you'll get to that God stuff later. Just take care of you now. Um, And I don't see that in the scripture. I see men and women who are urgently chasing after God, who who follow Jesus in a way that's now, it's immediate. It's not perfect, but it begins right away. Um, And so the, the first part of the acronym will be urgently address or attack our sin. I couldn't really decide on the, the best word there. Uh, so I just chose both. Um, but urgently address and attack our sin. Um, there's a story that I've heard of, of an American eagle. And it's flying over the Niagara River. And it's the middle of winter. It's cold. It's been a long time since he's had a meal. And he looks down. And to his delight, he sees a young bull floating a dead young bull floating down the river. And he thinks, this is my lucky day. And the eagle flies down. He lands on the bull, and he just starts to devour. He just starts to feast. He sinks his talons in, and he feasts and feasts and feasts. And he starts to realize that the falls are coming up, and he gets closer and closer. And he says to himself, well, I'll I'll just continue to feast, and and then once I get to the very edge, once this bull gets right to the point where it's about to go over, then I'll then I'll fly away. And so he waits and he waits and and the carcass gets right to the edge and the eagle goes to take off and to his dismay, he finds that his talons have been frozen to the dead bull carcass and it pulls him over the edge with him. And, And the point of that story is that so many of us think that we have our sin under control. That, you know, I don't need to tell anyone about it. I don't need to do anything about it. I've got it. You know, I'll get rid of it later, you know, before I die, for sure. You know, I'll address this sin. 
I'll start to, to fight against my sin. Uh, or, or maybe it's for younger people, but before I get married or before I, I, I have kids, that's when I'll, I'll address my sin, before, before that happens. But so often what happens is our hands get glued to it. Our hands get frozen to those things that we just can't let go of. C.S. Lewis, he says it like this. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I don't want us to miss out on what the real treasure is. I want us to miss out on the true treasure of who Christ is because we're so obsessed with our, our stuff, with our sin. Um, the second part is we need to urgently commune with others. The Bible says iron sharpens iron, that we, we spur one another on. Uh, I don't think the Bible could be more clear that you can't do this alone. You can't love one another on your own. You can't bear one another bear one another's burdens on your own. You need to be in community. You need, in, in the Bible, there's this part in scripture where Peter starts to do and say some things uh, basically to get people to like him. And Paul shows up and, and says, Peter, you're doing this and it's, this is wrong. You, you need to change your ways because what you're doing right now, it's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. I think we all need that in our lives. We all need people that are close enough, that are part of our community, that are willing to call us out, that are willing to say, hey, you, you, you're screwing up. You need some help here. Let me help you here. Or, or, or somewhere where you could say into someone else's life, hey, I want to help you. you need, we need to pray together more. Let's do this together. The last part is we need to urgently tell others. Uh, John Piper says that hoarded joy rots, but shared joy increases. Uh, I think that's so true. Um, you share the things you love. I mean, think about it. If you find an awesome restaurant and you eat there and the next day you're like, dude, you have got to try this. The best pizza I've ever had was at this place. You've got to try it. Or if you find a coffee shop that you love, you're like, hey, don't go to Starbucks ever again. It's bad. you got to go to this place because this place is awesome. Like, when we get excited and, and we enjoy things, we share them with other people. And that ought to be uh, what we do with Christ. And, and Christ tells us, he commands us to share him with others. And when we do that, it, it's almost like this joy increases this joy of, of having the treasure, of, of knowing the worth of the treasure that Christ is, increases. And so we need to attack our sin. We need to commune with others, and we need to tell others about who Christ is. Um, as the band comes up, um, I, I was almost going to finish uh, with asking the question, are you willing to buy the field? I was almost going to ask that question and I kind of realized something is, is that you can't buy the field. You can't buy anything from God. The, the truth is the field has already been bought for us. Um, I think the Apostle Paul says it best in Philippians. He says, I want to take hold of that which has already taken hold of me. It's not 
this exchange of I'll stop being bad, I'll stop doing these sins, and I'll, I'll start spending more time around Christian people so that God will love me. It's, I want to take hold of that which has already taken hold of me. I want to chase the one who has caught me. And so, as we go into uh, communion right now, that's what we celebrate. We celebrate that we get to chase the one who has caught us. We, we celebrate that the field has been purchased for us, that we don't do it on our own, that Jesus, he went to the cross, that he spilled, he poured out his blood, he poured out his life so that, that we wouldn't have to. I think when we understand the beauty of who God is and what he's done on the cross, it changes everything. It opens our eyes to the fact that the loss of everything else in order to gain Christ is a joyful transaction. I just think, man, how lucky are we that we get to participate in this, that we get to be part of what Christ is doing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can't exaggerate your love. We thank you that we can't exaggerate the treasure that you are. That we don't have to buy you, but you're worth it. You're worth losing everything for. As we go in this time of communion, I pray that we reflect on what you've done for us on the cross through your resurrection that we would take hold of the one who's already caught us it's in your name we pray